As I sit talking to you tonight on the Twilight Zone podcast, I am faced with shelf upon shelf of books about the show. Books about what went on behind the scenes, books about the history of the show, and books retelling the stories that were in it. But amongst all these books is one volume that sticks out from all the rest. Because this volume isn't about the Twilight Zone, but it is about that other Rod Sailing show, The Night Gallery. And the book is called Rod Sailing's Night Gallery, An After Hours Tour, and it was written by two gentlemen called Scott Skelton and Jim Benson. Now I do have some other books that have Night Gallery stories in them, but if you want the behind the scenes information about the show, and reasoned and balanced reviews of each episode, then this really is where the Night Gallery books begin and end. But this isn't going to be the only Night Gallery book on my shelf for long, because coming very soon is a new volume from those two writers, Scott Skelton and Jim Benson, that is going to join it. And I was very pleased when Scott Skelton agreed to come on the show to tell us a little bit about his past in the Night Gallery, and also a bit about that new book and what we can expect. So presented to you is when I spoke with Scott Skelton. I guess the first question I've got for you then, Scott, is that, you know, you along with Jim Benson have written the definitive work on the Night Gallery, the After Hours Tour book, but what is it about Night Gallery that attracts you to that show in particular? I guess you could say it was my first... I can't say it's my introduction to Serling because I had seen episodes of The Twilight Zone when I was very young. Mm. But I wasn't really... You know, I mean, it was just... When you're a child, um, you don't see with the same eyes as when you begin to have an understanding of... Um, drama and literature and things like that. And by the time I was 11 or so, I um, began to really be fascinated with film and drama and theater. Uh, and of course, I was a, a voracious reader too. And, um, you know, uh, um, the realm of dark fantasy fiction was a big draw for me. I mean, one of my first favorite authors was Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. And differing from Twilight Zone. Uh, Night Gallery was was less of a, whatever you want to call it, science fiction, speculative fantasy. It was mainly a, a series of moral tales that were dressed up in speculative fiction dressing. Mm. Uh, Night Gallery was more uh, along the horror and dark fantasy vein. And it still had, for about at least a third of the episodes, they were written by Serling. And Serling has a specific voice, a specific point of view. And uh, I was just fascinated by these and followed it with great joy throughout my 12th year or whenever it was finally ended. Uh-huh. And um, it was just my first introduction to the brilliance of Rod Serling came from Night Gallery. I went back and, you know, um, I introduced myself later to many of his other works, which were equally brilliant. But I guess you could say there's a certain amount of nostalgia value to it for me because it was like a first love of mine. But 
like some nostalgic trips, they don't always uh, age well. But for me, Night Gallery has aged well, you know? Yeah, yeah. When you decided that you, you were going to do the original book, the After Hours Tour, I remember speaking to Mark Zickery, and he said that when he was trying to sell The Twilight Zone Companion, there was a bit of an attitude with publishers of, who cares about The Twilight Zone anymore? Now, I guess Night Gallery <laughs> is even more niche. So was it difficult to get the book out there? Sure. Um, it took us a long time to work up interest. I mean, we were going to finish the book no matter what, even if we had to self-publish. But um, mm. luckily, we tripped across Bob Thompson, who runs the um, television history wing of Syracuse University Press, and it was right up his alley. But he was literally like the 150th person we approached. Oh, wow. So we had a lot of, we had a lot of turndowns, and we were just committed to getting it done. Uh-huh. So we you know, went from one publisher to the next one, you know, uh, just trying to find someone who saw it like we saw it, which was, you know, um, this is perhaps not as culturally relevant to people as the Twilight Zone, but we still have as its creator, one of the great dramatists and one of the great cultural icons of the 20th century. It's important that we chronicle this. And Mm. uh, luckily, Bob Thompson agreed. Yeah. Yeah. One of the interesting things running through um, the After Hours tour is the disintegration of the relationship between Rod Serling and Jack Laird. Now, you present that in a very balanced way, but elsewhere I have seen Jack Laird painted as the villain in the Night Gallery and Serling as the, the kind of put-upon hero. So what's your take on the relationship between these two gentlemen? <laughs> uh, in a word, contentious. Yeah. Um I would, uh, yeah, I mean, I went into it, and from what I had read, Jack Laird was also painted as the villain. Mm. But as I got into it, I saw it was a little more complex. I'm not saying this to say that Rod Serling was treated well. He was not. Uh But um, a lot of things that people claim they love about Night Gallery are things that Serling had nothing to do with. I mean, there were episodes that he did not write, and of course he had no creative input in terms of casting or other script pieces, and uh, the writing, all of it, was overseen by Jack Laird, who was not an inconsiderable writer himself. He had produced a number of distinguished shows and, and written for them all. Yeah. Um, but I believe, uh, I, I have to say, if I saw any reason behind his pettiness, about wanting to keep Serling on the periphery mm. comes came from, from Jack's secretary, Grace Curzio, who essentially said, I, I couldn't explain it either, except to say that I think there was some professional jealousy on Jack's part. And, and I thought about it for a while, and psychologically it kind of makes sense, because Rod was an enormously talented, facile, um, and facile in terms of the, the, the speed with which he could produce a high quality script. I mean, I read he would write on his drafts the number of hours it took to write and transcribe it. And some of them were these, these great pieces of work are cranked out in six and a half hours. Mm. Something, something I would be proud to be able to produce in a year or two. Um, so, and he had a dictaphone habit. It was faster for him. He could get more of them out. So he essentially spoke into a, um, a recording machine and had them typed up and then, went over them, whether the secretary typed up. 
And that Jack Jack was an old standard sitting in front of his underwood with piles of paper clips and paper around him, and he was um, a, a plotter, and he probably thought mm, Rod had a kind of a jet set, uh, you know, kind of approach to writing. Mm something that Jack felt very strongly about. I mean, I've, I've heard some people like Sidney Pollack, the director who Jack gave a chance to as a director on Ben Casey. He said, um, some of his writing was quite brilliant. I mean, I reminded him of Clifford Odette, you know, that coming from a man who was an actor in the theater and a director. So that's nothing I can poo poo away. Yeah, certainly. And I've, you know, you know, I've, I've seen, I've heard some of Jack's scripts and they are not, He's got a, a very um, snappy way of writing dialogue, and they're very tightly plotted, and there's very little fat on them, which is imperative for television. You can't have a whole lot of fat on your script because you don't have any time to tell your story. Uh-huh. So, I mean, he was quite a good writer, I think. I just think Rod was more than a step above. Rod was a brilliant writer who had a way of taking a worldview and investing it in everything he wrote so that everything that he writes is stamped with his distinctive vision mm. and that could make other writers jealous. I mean, Jack was not the only writer I came across who was showed signs of professional jealousy. I spoke with others who felt the same way. Okay. Okay. And I think if we add to that, I, I watched the documentary that you were a part of the other day. Um, the one presented by Leonard Nimoy. And I didn't realize how eccentric Jack Laird was, you know, there were stories about him like <laughs> taking a shower with a hose pipe in his, uh, in his front yeah. yard and that kind of thing. So he, he was quite an eccentric as well, wasn't he? Um, yeah, that was the, the director, John Batham. He was driving home from a late shoot and, you know, he turned the headlights on and there was Jack at the hose bib naked as a jaybird taking a shower because he had obviously fallen asleep at work, was not about to go home and shower and did it right there. Yeah, he was also. I mean, he was a a large man, very tall, uh, rotund, uh, a la Charles Lawton, mm-hmm. uh, and he wore the most outrageously, um, crazily expressive clothing. I mean, fringed leather vests and Cuban heels and bell bottoms and all the paraphernalia of the seventies. He was simply outrageous in his dress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a. He had a little cameo in a in a movie he did for television called Hauser's Memory with David McCallum, and it was set in, in Europe. But um, there's a scene where the camera pans, and you can see him, and he's wearing a big, pimped-out, super-fly feather-in-the-hat feather with a huge mink-lined stole around his neck and these big, tall boots, <laughs> and he was quite an eccentric figure, especially around a staid place like Universal Studios, where he was seen as kind of this brilliant, I mean, they didn't know, like Geno Swart, the director said, they didn't know what to think about Jack. He was just kind of like this weirdo. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, I, I speak to Twilight Zone fans all the time, and someone can be the biggest Twilight Zone fan in the world, but I often hear them say, but I've never watched Night Gallery. So what, what for you is a good gateway episode for the Night Gallery, and what would you say is your favorite story from the Night Gallery? The gateway episode is probably the one that's the most notorious episode written by, uh, well, as, as usual in this show, the episodes had more than one story, and they were mm. two very good stories. The first was called The Caterpillar. Uh, Rod based it on a you know, so-so kind of short 
by a, a British author named Oscar Cook, but he turned it into this fascinating psychological study of a man uh, who is deeply jealous of his employer's wife and uh, plans to the help of some of the local fauna, mm-hmm. a, a jungle earwig. This is set in Borneo. Um, and it's quite, you never see any blood. There's no grossness, but it, the, the performances and the writing and the very idea of it, it's in your brain, just like that bug just eats into you. I mean, it's the one that everyone remembers. So I would say that's probably the place to start, but you have to use the complete episodes, not the ones that they put it in syndication because they've chopped them all to bits. So if you do see night gallery, please see the original cut. Don't see the syndication cut, which are just um, a a travesty by comparison. Uh And if you wanted to talk about my favorite story, I guess it would be the one that was the most personal for Rod. It was a a play wrote called, um, they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar. Yes which um, was um, a kind of a meditation on um, losing one's mojo in middle age, not being seen as a bright young man anymore and feeling a little lost in the world that had changed around you and kind of yearning for days past. Um, It's a common theme with Rod Serling in a number of his plays, but this one was kind of like the capper to all of them. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah. I think no no matter what people think about the night gallery there is a fascination with the paintings themselves uh the ones that Rod stood in front of at the beginning of each episode could you give us a bit of a background on those paintings how how they were produced and so on Well for the pilot film um that was a matter of hiring the man on the set that was considered the the fine art interpreter, probably the, the best forger I, I think I've ever seen, was a guy named Yaroslav Gaber. Mm. Uh, he was from Czechoslovakia, and um, he did three amazing portraits for the uh, for the pilot film. But the guy who got <laughs> the job of doing it for the series was a younger artist named uh, Thomas Wright. And he was extremely swift and facile and could uh, seemingly paint in many different styles so that each one he did was seemed as if it might painter of a different artist than the last one. They were incredibly varied and he produced them on a essentially a production line. He said he would work on five at a time Uh because I mean, for that second season, he had about six months to crank out about 70 paintings, which for any artist would be daunting. And for him, he managed to still are probably the most notable thing that, that fans talk about. Uh-huh. Um, the, the art was quite incredible and um, they were sort of perfect introductions to the stories whether written by Rod or someone else I mean um, Len Engelman uh, one of the makeup men on the show he would see them when they first hung them up when they were doing the introductions and filming them with Rod in front of them and he, he would gasp and say this tells the entire story and he called them what he considered the soul of the night gallery the soul of the show were the paintings uh-huh. because they were such these brilliant, brief, but beautifully rendered introductions to the stories themselves. So I, I know if I worked on Night Gallery, I would probably be trying to put one in the trunk of my car at the end of the day and take it <laughs> home. But what what's happened to these pictures now? Um, I would say what you last said was probably a pretty good idea because <laughs> a lot of them are missing. Right. And I've been told by people who worked on, on the set, it was not unusual for a producer after a show 
to come and say, you know, that painting they made for it, to put it in my car. Right. They literally said that to the, the, the prop guy. And what's the prop guy going to do? You're not going to say no to a producer. Uh-huh. So, um, uh, sadly, many are missing. We've been able to track down, I'd say, about 60 out of the more than 100 that were done. But I'm afraid some of them are were um, purloined <laughs> yeah. uh, from from a, a very badly secured um, property house, warehouse. Um, others were um, gifted to artists. Some of them were reused in other shows. Some of them painted over for other shows. Oh, wow. Um, but um, there were some collectors out there who managed to get their hands on it. And through them, uh, the publisher of the upcoming book uh, on the art of darkness, which it's called, mm. um, we have tracked down and photographed quite a number of them in, in the hands of private collectors. So they've been at least preserved in that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as for the rest, it's, it's anyone's guess where they are. Well, Scott, I, I was so happy to hear about this book because like everyone, I'm fascinated by these paintings. Um, so can you tell us about the book? What, what have you got planned? Well, our, our absolute focus was on getting images of every single painting that was done for the gallery and displayed on the show. And that, of course, became very difficult when we ran out of people we could ask to photograph the ones that they held. Yeah. For the rest, um, we've secured a license from Universal Studios to um, essentially extract images off the film itself, or at least their most recently remastered version of it, so that for the ones that we can't find and physically photograph, we can take the ones that Rod was standing right in front of on the show mm. and use those. And to help with the, the appreciation of it, we've talked with Tom Wright and Yaroslav Gaber and Gaber's son, Thomas, to get sort of um, a background on what the inspiration for each one was, uh, what the um, dimensions and, and media were, and um, what the work process was like. So the reader can understand not just appreciate the painting, but what went into it, what the inspiration was, what, uh, you know, and uh, compared one to the other and see how incredibly varied they are. And very much like a lot of fine art you could see in the 20th century. It does not, it does not pale by comparison to any of the things I've seen in museums. The book has been a kind of a 20 year labor of love between Taylor White, the publisher and I, we've been going back and forth, dreaming about this and finally things began to came together only recently so it's been a 20-year journey of trying to get all this stuff together and get universal interested and um so we're very pleased uh with the book is you know i could say 75 percent finished and uh we're very pleased with the way it is it's been beautifully designed by a, a pair of designers that uh, taylor works with and i think it'll be a very distinguished uh, representation of the fine work from that show and it's really about time because the fans have been clamoring for it for for decades yeah yeah definitely so so i, I take it we're, we're going for quite a plush product here are we a, you know a really prestige edition absolutely it's a hard covered coffee table book um there will be signed editions of it for those who want to invest a little bit more Mm-hmm. Um, all the details can be found on um, creaturefeatures.com, which is the place where it will be sold. And right now there's a countdown on Facebook on the Rod Serling's Night Gallery Art of Darkness page. Uh, we're, I think, on day four. On November the 8th, 
there will be a Kickstarter campaign opened up for those who want to get their copy in early because it is a limited edition. Uh, the plan is to only do a thousand or a little more. Wow. And so first come, first served. Um, so they can get on Kickstarter and pick uh, whatever version of the book they want. Uh-huh. Uh, and when it comes out in early January, I believe, um, that's the version they'll get. And uh, yeah, But it will be, you know, glossy paper, like a coffee table art book, uh, a tour through the Louvre, that kind of thing. And I've seen his other books that, uh, that uh, Creature Features has done, and um, I'm uh, obviously hoping this will be as polished and beautiful beautifully designed affairs as those are fabulous i I really can't wait i can't wait excellent scott before i let you go i I just want to ask you this one thing because every few years we hear rumors of someone reviving the night gallery and and i think most recently a sci-fi channel might have been doing it what what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? You know, should they leave well alone, or do you think maybe in this day and age they could do something with it? Well, you reach you know you have a kind of a similar problem with Twilight Zone, mm. which is that the thrust of the piece was was mainly came was the brainchild of Rod Serling, who is no longer here to. to I mean, there can be homages to it, mm-hmm. and I I see nothing against it because it perhaps will re increase interest in the actual original. Um, I suppose it could be done well, but, um, you know, I've heard these rumors numerous times over the years. I mean, Tom Thayer has been rumored to do, be uh, bringing it up for, uh, to do a redo, a uh, reboot, uh, about three times in the past, mm-hmm. uh, 15 years, 20, 20 years at least. And they never come to fruition. The most recent one does not involve him, but involves some producers that I know have done some fine work and, um, I wish them all the best, but once again, we heard about this information in December, November of last year, yeah. and not a whisper since. I mean, nothing. And usually you hear something in the trades about somebody being hired, um, script writers, you know, crew people, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and nobody's heard a thing. And some of the people that were involved in the show, supposedly, I mean, they, they came to um, the showing of, of Tom's uh, paintings in, in, uh, in a museum setting, Mm. Last January, I mean, we we met them, but again, we've heard nothing since. So we'll see. I mean, uh, I, I wish them the best, and I hope um, they choose some good writers who can emulate what Rod and was trying to do, and Jack helped with. But you know, these things are a coin toss. You know, yeah, it could be great. It could be great, and it could be a travesty. We'll see. Well, Scott, I want to say thank you again for um, speaking to me today, but also thank you for the work you've done over the years to really champion the Night Gallery. You know, some people do say it lives in the shadow of the Twilight Zone, but I think it deserves, you know, a wider audience. And you've been a champion of it for all these years, and now you're doing this new book as well. So thank you for speaking to me, but thank you again for all the work you've done for Night Gallery and uh, keeping Rod Sailing's legacy alive. Thank you. That warms me. That makes me feel very good. I appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. All right, Scott. Thank you so much, man. I can't wait to get my hands on the book. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) And I appreciate your interest, Tom. It's It's been a pleasure. Thanks. So my thanks again to Scott Skelton for coming on and telling us about his original book, but also the new one, 
coming out too. I am really excited about it. To be honest, I am one of those people who have always been fascinated by the night gallery paintings and I've always wanted to be able to sit and examine them in this way, you know, have a book or prints of these pictures. So I'm really pleased that it's coming out. So hopefully you've got all the information you need from that interview, but I will just reiterate it here. The Kickstarter to get the book funded begins on the 8th of November 2019, so a couple of days from this podcast coming out. But if you want to stay up to date on the countdown, then on Facebook, if you put into the search Night Gallery Art of Darkness, then you will find their Facebook page and get up to date information on there. And there's little sneak peeks of some of the images that are going to be in the book as well. Or you can go to the website of the publisher, which is creaturefeatures.com. And you can see that this is a publisher who is devoted to the more cultish and off the beaten track brand of book. And I think when a publisher is doing those things, you can tell that they are doing it with a real fan's eye. And like Scott said, because it's a labor of love. So so if you haven't been involved in a Kickstarter before, basically it's a website devoted to funding a project. Now, the good thing about Kickstarter is you can get in on the ground floor, but also there will be different tiers. Now, I don't know what the tiers are with this particular book, but I have contributed to books in the past and you will have options like just getting a copy of the book itself or getting a signed copy or getting a copy of the book with various extras. You know, I think with this one, it'd be nice to maybe get a couple of good quality prints of night gallery pictures that could maybe be framed so you can display the book in front of a night gallery image. I think that would be a really cool extra. Hopefully there will be something like that, but this is going to be a day one thing for me. I'm not getting a review copy. I'm not getting paid to do this. I am championing this because it's something that I've always wanted to see and I will be there on day one paying for it like everyone else. So keep up to date via the Facebook or the creaturefeatures.com website and uh, hopefully you will have your hands on this, uh, this volume too. So thanks to Scott again. I can't wait to check out the book and I will speak to you next time when we will be back in the Twilight Zone.